0: Ready to hear the word, aren't you, Clint? Clint's got his pacifier in and he is ready for this sermon. So, we're, We are in uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 4 this morning and it's a communion Sunday so we change things up a little bit. In that we um, have a sermon and then we have an opportunity to go before the Lord in a time of praise and celebrate Holy Communion together, and I hope that it'll be even more special this morning in light of our scriptures. In the first three verses of chapter four, the uh, professor Solomon he he is in um, he, he's basically written a whole book of observations. He's just looking at the world. He's experiencing the world. He's trying to find meaning and purpose in the world. He wants to get to the bottom of things and understand what's real and what's not, and. Based on what you believe and you carry it out in your life, what makes the most sense? And so he has taken the he posi- takes different positions, but one of his main positions is that if there is no, if all we have is what's under the sun, there's no divine being above the sun, there's nothing outside of us to be accountable to, then we live in quite frankly a meaningless universe. Everything is in vain. Nothing really matters if there is no God, because we're just left to ourselves. Uh, he also observes that in our world in these first three verses that there is injustice among us, and there is injustice even in the places that we have instituted to promote justice, and that is in our courtrooms. And it's true. It's, a, it's an accurate observation. Uh, we, we are a fallen people. We oppress each other. We do judge each other. Uh, We abuse each other. We cheat each other. And God hates it. And you would expect Solomon to come out with a teaching about what we can do about it. And of course, there are things in scriptures, other places that tell us what we can do about it. Well, we just live just lives. Uh, We can transform culture. But in this case, he just says, he doesn't give us an answer. He just says that God knows. God knows about all these injustices. He keeps a record. And that in the end... Everybody is accountable to the Lord. So it's within this context of vanities and I guess kind of a broken society that he continues in chapter 4. And in verses 4 through 12, he's primarily going to teach us about community, relationships, friendships. And then in chapters, in verses 13 through 16, he's going to give us another example of how life under... Lived only under the sun is all vanities. And I'm just going to change it up a little bit this morning. I'm actually going to observe verses 13 through 16 first, because it doesn't really matter in the text chronologically, because they're just observations. And then I'll come back to 4 through 12 and talk about community. So in these verses, 13 through 16, is anything a big deal? Let's find out and read this text. Verse 13 in chapter 4. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet, those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely, this also is vanity and a striving after wind. So, what Solomon does is he gives us an example of how things, um, we might make a big deal out of things, we might be impressed by things, we might see events in life or people in life that greatly inspire us but in the end if there is no God if there's no deity even those things are no big deal they do not matter so he's driving home this idea of a worldview if you don't believe in a God that you can't have meaning in the universe if we came from nothing if we're going nowhere in particular we're nothing special there's nothing special about life then we can't make claims that really anything is special in life. And so as a, an example, he gives us something I think that we would all consider, like, wow, that's a big deal, that accomplishment. And in a sense, he gives us kind of a rags-to-riches story. Uh, who doesn't like a rags-to-riches story? Uh, Walt Disney got very rich writing rags-to-riches stories. We love those. So here's a scenario. We have a wealthy, uh, he's a king, he's He's wealthy, he's likely very, very powerful, and he is on the throne. and He is ruling a mass amount of people. So he has wealth, he has power, but what he no longer has is wisdom. And he doesn't have wisdom because he refuses to take advice from other people. Uh, King Solomon wrote in in the book of Proverbs that those that will not take advice from other people he there's a word for that and it's called fool you're foolish we become foolish if we are no longer invite other people's perspectives into our lives to help us understand the realities and the truths of lives of our life and the lives of others it's foolish and the tendency for humanity is that when we get in an elevated position, we get in. Uh, we've achieved a lot. We have a lot of power. We have a lot of wealth. We have a lot of money. We suddenly it go. Well, it goes to our heads, and we start to draw the conclusion. Well, I'm kind of greater than the average bear, am I not? I have climbed up here. I've put myself up here, or I've managed to, to uh, maintain this position, and. I feel a little superior, far superior than others, so why would I want advice from those who are not as successful as I am? Uh, If anything, they should come to me for advice. And that is a foolish, though it is a real assumption that we often make. So as a result of that, now the people have this powerful person, they have this very wealthy king, but they don't have the very thing they need, that wisdom, in order for this king to Lead them. They don't have that. So then you have this other person. Who is the rags to riches story. It's just basically. My understanding is a nobody. uh, Born in poverty. But has wisdom. Doesn't have the power. Doesn't have the wealth. But this individual has the wisdom. Has what the people need. To lead them and guide them. And so. This person is put in this position. He becomes a king and he leads many, many people. So this story, obviously, I think, is meant to grip us. It's meant to impress us. It's meant to instill hope in us. And rags-to-riches stories, especially people that overcome obstacles and wind up becoming world leaders, they are very, very inspiring. You think of... um, few came to mind when I was preparing this. Abraham Lincoln, the 16th president of the United States. You know the stories and you read the books as kings. Uh, as kids, he you know, was raised really impoverished in just a little log cabin. Um, his mother was, was very unpredictable. And he, in his life, pursued different things. But he, uh, he experienced one failure after another. But he never gave up, and in 1861, he eventually became the 16th president of the United States and arguably one of the most inspiring, um, if not best presidents, that we have ever had lead this nation. That's a powerful story. Our 20th president, James Garfield, has a similar testimony. He also, I don't know what it is with these log cabins in the 1800s, but he also was raised in a uh, impoverished in a log cabin. And so he didn't have a lot going for him, but he had grit, and he <coughs> basically became successful in different areas. He became a lawyer, a uh, Civil War general, and he served in the House of Representatives, and then he became our 20th president in 1881. So those are two rags-to-riches stories. A more recent one, I think, would be Ben Carson. Um, he was raised in the projects in Baltimore, Maryland. And his mother was illiterate. Just no dad in the home. And he had different personality issues. He struggled with, um, with anger in his childhood. But he overcame these obstacles. He read a lot of books. He studied hard. and He became the best neurosurgeon um, brain surgeon that the world, as far as I know, has ever seen. He overcame these obstacles, and then he even ran for president, and he did not become president, but he was appointed as Secretary of Housing for Urban Development just recently. So when people um, start at the top, you know, you already have everything, or you inherit things, it's not as grand of a story, but when you start with nothing and you rise all the way up into a position of leading the world, in certain, in certain areas, or nations, or large people groups, that is an impressive accomplishment. We would all say that's a big deal. But Solomon says, wait a minute, if you only have a materialistic worldview, that this is all this is, you can't land there, logically, with that belief. Because there is no, how do you even measure what a big deal is, other than by people's opinion, if there's no outside standard. So we struggle with this with justice. If there's no outside standard or absolute standard that we can all nod our heads yes or shake our heads no about what's just and unjust, then how can we ever even know when we're going in and out of it? And that same logic applies to success stories. How can we even define success If there's no standard to measure it with. And without something absolute, without a divine being, we do not have that standard. That explains our culture. Because our culture hails people today as heroes who have pretty much done nothing but made a splash. They've gotten our attention. They're not particularly good at anything but getting people's attention doing things that draw attention to themselves and yet they become some kind of hit or celebrity or very wealthy because uh, you like them on YouTube. Solomon brings us all down in, in uh, in his final verse when he says those who come later will not rejoice in him. Well, how come people will not rejoice? We rejoice, or at least I rejoice in the accomplishments of those who went before us in rags to riches. So how come other generations will look at history and different figures and not rejoice in them and see them as successful? And that's how materialism or relativism works. That you can't celebrate the same things. Life just becomes a matter of fads and opinions. That's, that ought to sound familiar as well. So I think Solomon is on to something here. We can't have objective meaning when we come to the conclusion that since there's nothing out there for us to serve or be accountable to, all we have is our own opinions and we just value them and then things just come and go. Things of value, they just come and go. They forever change. It reminds me of Scripture where it says... Um, God's word will endure forever. But you know what? Man's word is just the opposite. Our, our words and our um, conclusions, they change about every other day. Even things that we're very emphatic and dogmatic about. It's just, it's just a constant revolving door. But the word of God endures forever. So... In these verses, Professor Solomon is challenging his readers so that hopefully I, they will see the light of the need for God in order to live consistency. Consistently because without God, can anything really at all be a very big deal? Pretty pessimistic. Certain worldviews, if we're going to be consistent, they leave us you with know, a mindset of, Pessimism, there's really nothing to look forward to. But before all the pessimism, now let me go back to verses 4 through 12. He talks about another area of life that is very important. He's going to talk about community, about friendships, about companionship. And this is something that's no matter what faith you are, is important to everybody. There's nobody that would disagree that relationships are not. Even the grumpiest person in the world would not agree that there is something to this idea of friendship and companionship and relationship. It's a very, very important part of life. So let's read and learn from verses 4 through 12, the importance of community. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? A threefold cord is not quickly broken. So it's a little cryptic, I think, because it's uh, ancient wisdom, but it is talking about the importance, obviously, of friendships and community and, and numbers and having people that are, in, that are in place there for you. But I think it's um, important before we dive into this to realize. Why are relationships? Relationships are huge. I can't ever remember a time in history where there aren't great books or writings or readings about the importance of communities, societies, families, relationships, friendships, companionship. And I think it's important to point out that we can all, humanity can nod our heads about the importance of connecting with other individuals because we there is a God above the sun, and He's a relational God. Uh, we serve a God that is the three in one. And we often think about God desiring to fellowship with us. You know, the, the revelation passage. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock and if any would, anyone would open, hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. And God desires to fellowship and relate to us. It's a, it's a marvelous thing. But... But before we were even here, there's a beautiful relationship within the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have this beautiful companionship. They relate to each other in different aspects and roles, even though it's one Godhead. And it's a beautiful, self-sufficient community, if you will, within that. And He, this relational God that already was in relationship with Himself, created us in His image. And that means a lot of things. But one of the things it means is that to be created in the image of God is also to be, be created a relational being. So we crave relationship. We long to connect with other people. But we know that because of the fall in Genesis 3 that now there's what sin does is rather than connect us, it separates, it alienates, it isolates. And because of the fall, we lost our harmony with God and creation, our fellow man, and even ourselves. So now we live in this terrible tension. And it's a curse. It's a curse. We live in this tension where we long to connect. We want to be so tight with other people. We want to be loved and accepted. And we want to even think, well, I've got some love to offer. I have things to offer my fellow man We live in this tension because we want it, we long for it, we enjoy it when we can get it. But then sin also wants to mess it up. There are aspects about our nature that sabotage the very things that we long for. So we live in this tension. And Solomon points out some of this tension in this text here. Uh, There's a book written by sociologist Robert D. Putnam called Bowling Alone. The Collapse and Revival of American Community. I did not read it, but I, it caught my attention and I read a few snippets of it. And there's a few, th- it's, of course, it's filled with statistics. But there's a, f- there's a few things in there that really caught my attention. But one of the reviewers says, in this important book, Putnam demonstrates that social capital increased between 1900 and the late 1960s and then dramatically decreased Largely as a result of generational succession, television, urban sprawl, and the increasing pressures of time and money. So I won't go into all those statistics, but there was, he uses a word here that I, I thought, wow, that is very insightful. Social capital. But what is capital? Capital is all of your assets, it's your wealth, it's all that money you guys have under your mattress, and in the bank and in your wallets and all that plastic and the, and the homes and the cars, all these things that you own, that gets you places. That's your wealth. That's your capital. That's your foundation. And, it's, and you can draw from that and get places in life and live. Well, he coined this term. I guess he coined it. It's the only time I've ever seen it, is social capital. And that is, there is this, um, a plethora of wealth within your friends, within your community. That you can draw from. It's an investment. And it's, it's very, very valuable. So to have community is to have uh, capital. It's, it's to have access to valuable things. So what does he mean? Well, for example, um, if you have a network of friends. You have pals. You have companions there. Uh, you break down. And what do you do? You call a friend. I mean, this has happened to me more times than I care. I, bro- I break down. I call a local friend. Hey, can you, you know, side of the road, can you, uh, can you get me some gas or can you come and get me while I do these things? Because, you know, you, not everybody can just afford to, to call all these uh, costly things, but it's that network, network of friends, people that are there for you, um, and, you know, you have people lend you a car when your car breaks down. You have a friend. Hey, can I, can I drive this for a little while? I'm kind of, this is all I got right here. Child gets sick. You have several children. You need to take one to the doctors, but you need babysitting, so you, you, you call family or friends. See, it's, it's capital here. You have resources to help you through life. Now, the bank is closed, and whenever the bank is closed and I need money, I call Corky. I mean, this guy, it's like, hey, I got a good deal on Marketplace. I'm afraid somebody else is going to buy it. And so Corky's like, man, sure, I'll lend you a couple hundred dollars for that. I'm teasing about that, but he would. He would do that. But that's, that's the idea here, you know. Your your favorite movie just came out and you really want to see it. So you think, who would, who can I see this movie with? And you give them a call and you go out. Or a new restaurant. I want to experience this with somebody else. I want to experience life with somebody else. So all of these aspects in life, there's social capital out there. There's this great source of wealth and value that we have just in companionship and friendship. So for our church family, you know, it might be, you have a way a wayward child and you just need somebody to partner with you and pray or you get sick and you're down and all these notes or cards or texts of encouragement come and and it just it fills your soul the the social capital you're retrieving the wealth from it that's there and it's helping you through your life you're having a birthday party or you got a promotion in your job and You're making all kinds of money now and you want to celebrate. So you call up your friend, Hey, let's just go here. You sure you can afford it? I can now. Let's go and celebrate this together. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. It's very, very valuable. It's like this invisible account that you have that helps you through the highs and lows of life. And it has a great rate of return when we invest our lives in one another. And we are made for it, so it fulfills our hearts. You know, based on what I can see today in our culture, if you have a strong community, you have a rare thing. If you have a good network of friends, you have a rare thing. The, the younger generations, is just not as important, it's not cultivated as it once was. So with all that, Solomon mentions some things that can ruin this social capital, if you will. And then he gives us some reasons why it's important. So let's look at some things. If you want to know how to sabotage a friendship or community or not be a part of it, here are some things. Verse 4, Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work came from a man's envy of his neighbor. And this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. This is envy. This is jealousy. If you want to sabotage your community or your friendships, just be envious and jealous. So, this poor guy can't get over the fact that his neighbor has everything that he wants. Those are the things that I would like to have, and I don't have them, but you have them. You've got that money, or you've got the good looks, you've got the smarts. Uh, you, you have my dog's ugly, your dog is beautiful. You know, And sadly, because of our fallen nature, rather than rejoicing in these things over our neighbor, wow, you got that, that's so cool, that's so nice, I'm so happy for you, I rejoice with you. We, all, we, we, we alienate ourselves and get all twisted up and we envy those things and we're jealous about those things. And so sadly, this guy, there's people in the world that are motivated to work hard, what? Just so they can compete with their neighbors. So they can look good too, maybe so they can get the attention too. And it's wrong. It's not much of a neighborhood. It breaks down community and it strains, kills even relationships. You know, so a good question to ask is, well, the opposite is learning to rejoice. Can you rejoice in your neighbor's gains? Can you rejoice when other people in your community get things or God blesses them with the very thing that you want and you don't have. Things that can be just surface fluffy things, but there's deep, deep, deep things that we often want or desire and other people are blessed by them. Can we rejoice in that? One of the most beautiful uh, displays of this that I've seen happen in this church at one, t- one point, and it was... Um, It was a a mother who lost an infant child and yet had a friend who gave birth to a child around that similar time and went and visited them and rejoiced. Not, Not pulling other people into the loss, but rejoiced in this new birth, this gift that God has given them. That's a heart of grace. That's a strong network of friendship when even when we've lost things that are valuable to us, we can say, bless you, I am so happy for you that God has brought this into your life. It's those kind of things that we take for granted and yet they make for a very, very strong community. Envy and jealousy kills community. Another thing that kills community is laziness. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. That's just plain old laziness. How can you be a good friend or even have a friend if you're going to be too lazy to pick up the phone, if you're going to be too lazy to get off the couch when you're invited to go do this or, or, or do that, you're invited to a youth group, you're invited to a cup of coffee, you're invited to go to a basketball game or something, you know, people are trying to draw you in to this, and you're just too lazy. You don't want to move your bones. You don't want to move your brain. You don't want to lean too far to the left or to the right because it's too much energy. It takes too much effort. And that's the whole point, that if we're not willing to put energy and effort into investing in other people, into building community, we will not have it. It will not happen. If we don't participate in uh, in our case, if we don't participate in whatever church community we have that is offered, then we will be disconnected. We won't have it. We'll feel alone. We'll feel alienated in that sense. So something as simple as laziness is a community killer. He also mentions this imbalance drive. This person is very driven, but it's imbalanced. And better one hand, verse 6, with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and a chasing after the wind. So rather than being lazy, this person is incredibly uh, driven, but all they want to do is work. And because they have both hands in it, they work and work and work and they miss out on important things of life that are intended to bring peace to their, to their hearts, peace and rest to their soul. And the idea is that uh, the balance comes when you have one hand in work, six days you shall work, but in, one, in the seventh day you shall rest. And so to have this balanced life, rather than working all the time and working yourself into a frenzy and anxiety about everything, we work when it's time to work, but we Sabbath when it's time to Sabbath. And that helps us be balanced in our lives. God has built in rest. And when all we do is work, then we miss out on the blessings of family, community, friendships, of fun, rest, uh, just going for a walk, looking and enjoying God's creation, all the other gifts that He has given us. And we, become, we can become a, a sourpuss. So there's this a built-in rhythm of life that God has given us. And we want to keep one hand here on this and one hand on that so that we don't just turn inward. So we want to resist these kind of things. You know, uh, it's okay to turn your phone off. It's okay to turn your work phone off. It's alright. Life will, The sun will come up the next day if you turn your phone off. If you shut down your work laptop. The world keeps moving down. Step away from the office. So we need to get rest because that's how we enjoy God. That's how we enjoy friends and family. Sometimes playing a game of cards, I'm not a big game player, but sometimes playing a game of cards is a good thing to do. Enjoy your work, but enjoy your play. Feeling a little bit judged right now for some reason I'm saying about this. So it kills community. So then verses 7 through 8, more money. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there's no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasures? Why am I working so hard? Who's going to benefit from this? This is also vanity and unhappy. So this guy's not lazy by any means, uh, and he's really not envious uh, and he's not a workaholic for the sake of being a workaholic. He just loves money. And the only way he can figure out to get the money is to, he's got to do whatever it takes to get it, so he winds up working a lot. He doesn't think through, what does all this mean? Where is it even headed? He just knows that he this person wants money. That's the goal in life. So whatever it takes. And the problem, again, it's like the workaholic while you're seeking after that one goal that for whatever you think it's the pot at the end of the rainbow, you're giving all you have to it, you're missing out on the other important things of life. So you don't have the relationships. You don't have the social capital. You don't have the network. Uh, and, the, and you're not enjoying other stages and blessings of life. You know, maybe you just stay single because you're so busy chasing after money. Or maybe you're married and you'd like kids, but you're too busy to have kids. Or you're too busy to play and enjoy the kids, play with and enjoy the kids that you have. Because all you want is money, money, money. And you live for that. And you can become very, very greedy. So... That kind of mindset is also a community killer because it's self-centered. It's not thinking about the preciousness of others. So then he gives us some reasons for um, relationships and friendships, why they are important to us. Verse 9, life lived in tandem. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. Uh, I, I mean i can 't really that does that 's self explanatory two are better than one right it 's more fun to do things together but a lot of times you when you when you go out places you see people are together it 's you know i 'll eat by myself, but it 's more fun to eat with somebody else i 'll talk to myself, but it 's more fun to talk to somebody else you know it 's that kind of thing there you know you can golf by yourself. Or you can go to a movie by yourself. I mean, you can do these things, but it's just more enjoyable. Uh, it's better to play checkers with somebody at the other side of the, the table. It's just more fun to do those things. It's interesting because when I was working on this sermon, it was during a little cold snap we had. And in the winter, we heat with a wood stove. And so our pattern is um, to uh, every once in a while, if you get a little chilled, you you huddle by the wood stove you warm yourself by the wood stove so i'm working on this sermon and i'm in my office i'm getting a little chilly because you just sit still you don't move and so i get a little, so i go out to warm myself at the wood stove and there's lisa she's warming herself at the wood stove and it's more fun to warm yourself at the wood stove with two life is good lived in tandem and so we both warm up over there you know life with other people at, It draws out life, actually. It draws out the blessings that God has for us. And then, another reason to have social capital, to invest in others, in verse 10, is because you're going to need a helping hand. You're going to need a helping hand in this life. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. You know, no matter how self-sufficient we are, no matter how much we have our act together, no matter how responsibly, responsibly, responsible we are, and those are all, at least the responsibility part, I think they're all good things. But life is designed, sooner or later, something's going to happen, we're going to fall. Life's not perfect. It just, it just doesn't continue like that. And I thank the Lord for good seasons. But there's times where we're just going to fall and we need other people. We can't do it by ourselves. We're going to get sick. Uh, We're going to lose a job. We're going to lose a loved one. We're going to get low. We're going to face a trial. Something's going to happen. And Solomon says, pity the person that has lived the life and hasn't invested in other people and they're down and they have nobody. It's a pitiful place to be. Just this week, Um, the whole elder family was sick, really, really sick. Jesse and Quincy and Ava and Boone. And then of all things, when the TV goes out and when you have little kids that are sick, you know, all they can do is just sit there and stare. So you want them to be staring at something nice. And so um, she called it in at Walmart and Lisa and I went. We got it. We brought it left it on the front porch and left. So they had somebody to call. In a time of deep crises, the kids needed. So when tragedies hit, you know that's when we need friends the most. When it's when things are going well, you think, "Oh man, I got this," and then it hits, and you realize, "I need some help." It might be just I, I, I'm having you know I'm having bad thoughts. I need some encouragement. I need some prayers. I just need some help in life. I can't do it by myself. I'm trying. But here's the thing. We need to be in place. We need to be in place for others so that they have us to draw from. And we need to have others in place so that we can draw from them. It's a mutual investment in understanding the biblical view of the value of relationships. It's it's spiritual, but it's also very, very practical. As a matter of fact, you can't get any more practical than verse 11. Again, If two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? It's a pretty rhetorical question. So look, you may have a top-of-the-line electric blanket. You may have an awesome heating pad. And you may have lots and lots of blankets. But I'm just going to tell you, it's not the same as body heat. It's not the same as body heat. One of the most exciting things at night when it's cold is to snuggle under the covers together. It's a very, very practical thing. If you're married, you know what I'm talking about. If you're not married, then you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so at night, you know, it, it, like I said, we have a wood stove, and <clears throat> we have, uh, it's cold in the other rooms, it's a little chilly, and we like it that way, but I... So I purposely try to delay sometimes getting in the bed at night so Lisa will get in there and warm the covers up. <laughs> then I can get in there and do it. But this has a broader application. It's, it's, just not, it's not all about just the, the intimacy of a marriage relationship. I mean, it just works in life. There's, there's a companionship. There's a warmth in being together. I mean, a lot of kids grow up sharing beds together. And it has a maybe because uh, they don't have another bedroom or another bed. I always, until I was a late teenager, I shared a room with a sibling because we had a lot of kids and not enough bedrooms to go around. So people share beds together. And the idea is that you're gleaning from one another. Some kids uh, share the same bed. Sisters might share the same bed. And and it's comfy and it's cozy and they like it. They don't want to go to bed by themselves. And um, that way if a monster comes out from under the bed, there's two of you to fight. Actually, that will be that's coming up, pretty sure, that verse there. So we have practical needs, and that God, uh, in His grace, He provides for these kind of things, something as simple as being warm at night. Isn't God incredible like that? Sometimes we just need those little things. Sometimes we just need a, a little hug or a handshake or a fist bump or just to be seen, to be heard. And God graces us with these practical connections here. And then, last but not least, there's safety in Numbers, verse 12. And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. You know what he's saying here, and I don't know the context, but if, you, if you're at odds with somebody, and it looks like it's going to turn into a fight. Bring your toughest friend that you got with you to go to this thing. I mean, that's, that's the way I'm understanding this. And if you got two tough friends, bring them. Because then you have a better chance. Like, if, if that's the position you're in here, that's the idea. But the bigger idea is that um, good friends insulate us from dangers. Good friends insulate us. So you you put good friends around yourself. You have buddies to help you through hard times, to help you through the the threats and the terrors of life. It's another practical blessing. So if you're, um, you're a female and you're downtown in the city and you're walking to your car at night, you're less likely to be threatened if there's more of you. So... There's power in numbers, you've heard it before. So friends and people, we can insulate each other against harms and threats there. It's another form of social capital. I mean, it's valuable insurance to have other people help in fighting your battles, help in insulating you, help in protecting you, whether it's mentally or physically. Draw people in capitalize on what God has given us you know loving loyal relationships insulate us against a lot of potential tragedies and bloody noses in life so there are some things that will sabotage a community and there are some really good reasons to build up a community to make friends, to have companionships, that social capital where we have people in place, but also we are in place for others so that if there's any kind of need, whether it's rejoicing or helping, getting over. So we have an opportunity, I think, in a sense, to apply this because when we practice communion at New Covenant Fellowship, we come up as families. And so it's a show of solidarity. And we can appreciate each other as we remember what Christ did on the cross. We also have an opportunity to stand and sing together. And as we lift our voices up, we sing in solidarity with one heart and with one mind. And it creates that community. And then today in particular, we have an opportunity to practice what we've learned as we share a meal together. Not just fill our bellies, and that's good to do, but also maybe fill our hearts by reaching out, connecting, and investing in one another and building a strong biblical community. May God bless the preaching of His Word and let's, uh, let's sing some praise.